Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Today is our 9-11 special, and I can tell you right now, this is going to be one of the most disturbing interviews you've ever heard here. Our guest today was a U.S. diplomat, and as the former chief of the U.S. visa section in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, ran into a buzzsaw when he complained about and then blew the whistle on being forced to issue U.S. visas to an inordinate number of unsavory characters. At that time, he had no idea what he was really blowing the whistle on. But when he discussed it with a visiting State Department inspection team, his boss retaliated with a vicious efficiency report. Thus began J. Michael Springman's descent into whistleblower hell. Eventually, with the help of a journalist, he figured out just how deep and dark a situation he'd been in as part of, are you ready for this? The government's Visas for Terrorists program. You heard that right, Visas for Terrorists, thousands of them, including those involved in 9-11. Six years ago, Springman published a book about his personal experiences with this story titled, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rocked the World. If you've ever wondered how we really got to 9-11, this is the book to read. But let me warn you that the depth and breadth of the treason and savagery in this book will hit you in your solar plexus like nothing you've experienced before. That said, Listen as hard as you can to what this courageous man, J. Michael Springman, has to say. Because understanding the history of what happened and who did what provides rare context as well as hope for clearing a path to accountability and change. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for all those kind words. I'm quite happy to be on your program and having the ability to speak uh, and the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Listen, I have, I have no idea why I've never read this book before. I really don't. And, um, but let's just dive in because we only have an hour here. I just, I just want you to talk about first, just briefly, not too long, but what, what was going on there? Uh, who was doing what and what happened to you while you were there in Jeddah? Sure. Um, when I got into Jeddah after hearing some peculiar uh, stories about the consulate and the visa section, uh, I found that uh, I was being asked uh, first very politely to issue visas to people who didn't really have any ties to Saudi Arabia or their own country as the Immigration and Nationality Act requires. Uh, I had people, for example, uh, come to me, and they were the king's secretary's barber who wanted to go to America, and he'd been in the country maybe six months, and I refused him and was told I should issue the visa. Uh, then I had a guy sent to me by the CIA base chief, Eric Qualkenbush, and the CIA base is an operation that's run out of a, a foreign service post, uh, a consulate whereas the station is the head of all of the clandestine activities, intelligence activities in a country, and that's based at an American embassy. 
uh, Qualkenbush sent me this guy, and he said, look, uh, we're sending one of our people over. We want to make sure he's uh, he gets his visa. He, uh, you know, wink, wink, uh, he's been to the U.S. before. His family owns a rug shop in, uh, in Jeddah and so forth. So the guy comes in. And he's perfectly fine. He has visas in his passport from previous trips to the United States. Uh, he's got uh, good answers to my questions about what he plans to do and who he plans to visit. And he was entirely clean. And then I got other people who came over and wanted visas, and uh, they had no concept of what they were doing or where they were going. Uh, one, There were two Pakistanis who were going to go to an American auto parts trade show, but couldn't give me the name of the trade show and the um, city in which it was being being held. Uh, I then refused them, and uh, within the hour, got a call from uh, Paul Arvid Tveit, T-V-E-I-T, uh, a CIA clandestine service case officer in the uh, commercial section, saying I had to give these people a visa. I said, no, I didn't. Uh, it was against the law, and it was against the Foreign Affairs Manual's uh, regulations. So he went to the chief of the section, Justice, his given name, Stevens, and uh, got the visas for these guys. And this went on through most of my 18 months that I was there. Originally, it was, you have the final decision, but we really want a, a visa for these people. And then it got to uh, do it or else. And then it was, if you don't do it, you're going to get fired. So it was a, uh, a very nasty situation. And when I spoke to the... Uh, the inspection team about this, Joseph P. O'Neill, uh, he uh, knew all about my complaints about the visas, about problems with uh, sales of alcohol uh, and such like, and kept assuring me that, oh, uh, this is confidential. It's it's uh, like the confessional. It's like attorney-client privilege. Uh, we're not going to breathe a word of what you say. And he told me more about what was going on in the consulate than I knew. So I confirmed everything he said after about an hour of being pressured. And the next thing I knew, J. Philip Frears, who fortunately now is dead uh, because he didn't come in out of the rain during a thunderstorm, uh, he wrote his vicious efficiency report guaranteed to get me fired. Uh, I was told by the Counselor for Consular Affairs, Stephanie Smith in Riyadh, that on my next trip to Washington, I should talk about this with the Bureau of Consular Affairs. I did so and was totally ignored. Uh, and then, uh, basically, uh, what I found out was happening uh, after talking to the journalist Joe Trento was that people who were being recruited for the war in Afghanistan against the then Soviet Union in the, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, these were the recruits that were being sent to me. Uh, they were being uh, then transferred to the U.S. with the American visa, uh, taught how to shoot things down and blow things up uh, at American military bases, primarily on the East Coast. Um, there were also recruiting offices in the United States, about 52 of them, including one in Washington, D.C., that I've never been able to track down. So uh, it, it was a, uh, a major operation, and uh, I'm beginning to think it's still continuing, but I actually have no proof of it at the present time. Well, I mean, some of the details that you provide in this book, uh, you, you talked about, uh, for example, at uh, Fort Belvoir in Virginia. Mm -hmm. How they were recruiting people? Could you could you could you talk about like what was going on here and all the facilities here? People have I don't think people have any idea. Any no, they idea. don't. The, the mainstream media, or as some people call it, the lamestream media, won't pick up on this, won't print it, uh, won't oh. talk about it. They want to keep it deep, uh, fixed, and, and uh, uh, out of the public eye. 
Uh, for I example, mean, Wood Belvoir, some 20 miles south of Washington, uh, is, a, 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 among other things, a, a Army intelligence headquarters. And uh, there was this guy who had been recruited by the Saudis and who said, look, uh, you know, we've made arrangements with the uh, Fort Belvoir. A number of uh, uh, people are leaving uh, the intelligence services down there, uh, uh, taking retirement or, or simply getting out of the, the armed services. And uh, we've got $150,000 or so to help you uh, train them and make sure they're recruited for the war in Afghanistan. So it was a cooperation between the American government at all levels, not just the State Department, not just the CIA, but hand-in-hand with Saudi Arabia and hand-in-hand with other of the American armed services. And uh, they had people who were triple agents. Uh, uh, One guy uh, worked for the CIA, worked for the Army, and and worked for uh, the terrorist organizations. And uh, uh, the American government apparently knew what he was doing because uh, they let him freely in and out of the country. And... uh, had uh, turned the other way when this was happening, even though they knew his background. Yes, uh, there you're was the blind sheikh, for example. Mohammed, right? Yeah, right. He was he was an FBI informant. He was a trainer. He trained people uh, for the CIA. He was a U.S. Army veteran, and he trained terrorists. I think, right? If I'm correct, yeah. at the mm-hmm. Al Khalifa Center in Brooklyn. Right. And he was a key planner of 9/11. Yeah. Right? You know, when I read when I read this stuff, I mean, all of a sudden, it all kind of a lot of pieces fell into place in my head. Mm-hmm. But you know, Americans don't realize like that center in Brooklyn. Did Did you say something about there being? I'm trying to remember like 50 of these centers. Uh, 52, I think, including one in Washington D.C. Now, what exactly, who runs these centers, and what exactly do they do? Well, the terrorists were running the centers, I I believe in conjunction with the American government, uh, recruiting people, raising money. Uh, They worked also closely with the, the, what they called the services office, the Maktab al-Khidamat, that was run by um, people who had trained Osama bin Laden. Uh, And uh, they were the people who... um, uh, published uh, bulletins on um, what was going on in, in Afghanistan and how they had to recruit their Muslim brothers to fight the godless communists. And uh, they figured that rich countries like America had well-to-do Arabs and Muslims who were willing to uh, to help fight against the uh, the Soviets. So they, they got money there. They transferred money abroad into Bosnia, for example, in one place uh, when they were busily dismembering Yugoslavia. So uh, it was a... Uh, a very shadowy organization with lots of connections to the American government at all levels. Uh, and in fact, uh, the American government was so good at hiding what it was doing uh, from its own people, they were also hiding it from the people they were recruiting. Uh, I had a conversation with Bob Baer, uh, the former CIA official, uh, who told me that uh, they were uh, uh, got the Saudis and the Pakistanis, the Inter-Services Intelligence uh, Branch of the uh, Pakistani Armed Forces, to do a lot of the recruitment and training and support uh, because they thought they were working for the, the evil Americans, uh, you know, the great Satan, uh, they wouldn't uh, be so deeply and passionately involved. But if they were working for fellow Arabs and fellow Muslims, it was another story. Uh, so Bear told me they were very, very successful at, at hiding what they were doing from the people they were even hiring. So now let's, let's 
let's do this in chronological order so people understand how this all how this all began, right? Because it was it was beginning in 1980. Okay, this is from your book. You write thousands of mujahideen were brought to America and made competent in terrorism by Green Berets and SEALs at U.S. government East Coast facilities, and that over 10,000 of them were trained in guerrilla warfare and armed with sophisticated weapons. Now, this all started because we wanted to train this cadre, and Osama bin Laden was working with the CIA to recruit these guys all over the Middle East. That was his job. But there were people recruiting them here also in the United States. Is that correct? Exactly. Plus other countries, you know, Indonesia, the Philippines, and so on. Uh, and the origin of all this goes back to Jimmy Carter uh, with the overthrow of the Shah in 1979 in Iran. Uh, the Americans suddenly realized they had lost uh, listening bases that the Shah had provided for the National Security Agency, and they were observing what was going on in the Soviet Union. And then Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, Carter's foreign policy advisor, said, you know, let's create a Vietnam for the, the Soviets in Afghanistan. They invaded the country. They rolled their troops in. And uh, let's uh, do something about this. Let's create a, a real storm for them. And uh, they recruited the, the Mujahideen and uh, trained them to shoot things down and blow things up, preferably with Soviet soldiers inside. And uh, eventually this went on to the point where the, the Soviets couldn't hold us anymore, and they simply withdrew in 1991, and not long afterwards, the, the Soviet Union collapsed. So, okay, so they, they got all these guys together, all these nasty characters, trained them, armed them to get rid of the Soviet Union in, uh, in Afghanistan. Okay, mm -hmm. then what happened? What happens well, then they realize that, hey, we've got a well-trained cadre of terrorists that we can use uh, against countries we don't like, that we want to see regime change in the right direction and Are, turn them loose connection? and keep backing them. Oh. Uh, they Hello? can do what we want. I'm sorry, uh, and, and you've seen the result. You, you saw the destruction of Yugoslavia. Uh, you saw the destruction of Iraq. You saw the destruction of Libya. You saw the destruction of Syria. Uh, and now they're working on Iran, and so far they haven't succeeded with Iran, but they've uh, murdered uh, uh, Lieutenant General yeah. Soleimani, uh, one of their top leaders, and the uh, Iraqi uh, deputy commander of their popularization, popular mobilization units, uh, uh, which is part of the Iraqi army. So they, uh, you, you had people in, deeply involved with the American intelligence services, the Israeli intelligence services, and the British and the French. Uh, and uh, you uh, had more arms, for example, in Libya uh, amongst the terrorists and the, the revolutionaries than the British had in their entire army. So uh, it's a, a very carefully coordinated operation uh, with help from Turkey, uh, with help from uh, uh, NATO. Uh, for example, in, in, uh, during the destruction of Yugoslavia, uh, the German Foreign Intelligence Service, the, uh, uh, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, uh, one of their top men uh, was masquerading as a, uh, uh, a humanitarian official dealing, doling out um, um, uh, food and, and various sorts of supplies with weapons hidden in the powdered milk. So, so let's let's get to 9/11 now, because mm -hmm. obviously that what what you say in your book is that the 9/11 players came out of this cadre. 
Yeah, you had the, the blind Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman. Uh, he had been recruited in, in Khartoum and gotten his American visa there. Uh, and I, I think Joseph O'Neill, the inspector of Jeddah, had a hand in that since he had been assigned uh, to, uh, to uh, Khartoum at, at one point uh, where the American embassy was located. Uh, you had um, uh, my wait, successor wait, several Wait, let's times. talk about the blind yeah. Sheikh for a minute. So he was okay. a CIA asset. Yeah. Who was recruited in Khartoum. So mm-hmm. how the hell does he get to the United States and get to blow up the World Trade Center? How the does, how does he get the other way. to do that as a CIA asset? Yeah, they, they knew that. They knew he was um, a person that uh, the American government wanted. They knew he was on a watch list, but he got the visa anyway. And uh, the guy was freely coming in and out of the United States any number of times from various places like the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and elsewhere. Well, but here's the thing. They give him a visa. He comes to the United States, okay? Now, Mm -hmm. because he's in the United States, he also becomes an FBI asset, correct? Yeah, I mean, pretty much he was working on their side, providing information, doing things for them. he He was a CIA asset, but he comes here to the United States for what? What what does the CIA understand that he's going to be doing when he gets here? Uh, good question. They, I, I've never managed to work that out, but I would assume that uh, he was their link to uh, the other right-wing crazies in the uh, the rest of the world. Uh, for example, Cheryl Bernard, uh, who was the wife of um, uh, the um, American uh, diplomat, ambassador to the United Nations, to Iraq, uh, and uh, other places, uh, she said we uh, we knew we couldn't overcome the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, uh, so we had to go out and find the craziest, most wild people we could find, and we turned them loose. And that's why there are no moderates uh, in Afghanistan anymore. These crazies killed them off. Right. So it's right. It's, it's basically uh, the U.S. worked with the dirtiest, sleaziest, most dangerous people in the world uh, because it suited American government interests. Well, wait a second, though. Let's. I want to. I really want to get to this 9/11 thing because. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, uh, the World Trade Center one was the precursor. They have this CIA asset who comes in the blind sheik. Now yeah. he's he and his he's got his minions working on a bomb for the the uh, World Trade Center one. The FBI has an asset in there, Imad Salem. Okay, that I guess he was an Egyptian guy. They have an asset in there who's watching what's going on. And then, you know, a few months before the deed, the FBI pulls Imad Salem out of the group. Imad Salem is so weirded out, he calls his FBI handler and records the call and says, why are you doing this? They're getting close to doing it. Why are you pulling me out? And the guy blows some smoke about funding or something. I mean, just really ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I actually have that recording. It's shocking. And then World Trade Center one happens. I mean, what? And then now he's in jail. But nothing ever comes out about him being a CIA asset, him being given a visa, you know, by the United States to come here. That's all of that is sort of forgotten. Yeah, that that would bring on questions. People might get smart enough to say, well, why is this? Who did he talk to? Why is he working for us? Don't we know anything about him? Uh, I mean, I I know one guy, um, 
when I was in Stuttgart years ago, uh, he told me about a girl who had been uh, thrown out of the United States at uh, the port of entry uh, because she said she was going for a short visit of a couple of me- weeks, and they found two years' uh, supply of birth control pills in her handbag. Uh, then I ran across a guy in New York uh, one time. He'd been a former uh, uh, immigration officer at the port of entry in New York City. And he said, well, we just trusted the, the folks who issued visas, and we figured if the uh, the guy in the scene uh, knew enough to give the guy a visa, we, who were we to question it? So I, I think it depends on who you get at the port of entry uh, that questions people. And, of course, if nothing is put into the system, since the State Department and the CIA didn't share information, and, and sometimes I wonder if they really still do. Yeah, uh, but the State Department, folks, through these pardon? consulates, you know, through these consulates, Mm-hmm. What was issuing visas to people who are who are on the terrorist watch list? Yeah, or in another case, was not on the list, not put into the um, the lookout list that the State Department uses. Before we would issue a visa, uh, we w- we would run the guy's name through the system through a computer in Washington, and if it came back that he was an axe murderer or a terrorist or whatever, uh, we wouldn't issue the visa. Uh, but on the other hand, if his name wasn't put into the list uh, because the CIA wanted to protect its assets, uh, it was another story. So now let's let's move on to 9/11 because first yeah. of all, Osama bin Laden is you know allegedly he was the guy, the big guy who funded this. You know he was in charge of the he was the capo di tutti copy of 9/11. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what. Now he's. He's, again, a CIA asset recruiting terrorists from all over for these uh, various ventures uh, with the United States in, in uh, first in Afghanistan and then in Bosnia. And, um, and the names of some of the people recruited show up, uh, obviously connected to 9-11. And uh, these people, again, uh, visas, uh, given visas to come to the United States. So what does that tell you when people say, well, you know, first of all, they can't figure out who's accountable for 9-11. Uh, 9-11 was simply a failure of imagination and, you know, nobody's going to be held accountable. Given what you have researched for this book and what you Mm -hmm. have personally experienced, how would you describe or how would you describe how 9/11 happened given this context that we're looking at now these thousands of people terrorists who were trained who how would you say this happened and who should be held accountable well the 15 of the 19 hijackers depending on how you're counting i understand there's different numbers depending on different sources uh, but 15 of them got the visas in Saudi Arabia, and 11 of the 15 got them at Jeddah from my successor several times removed, Shana Steinger. Uh, she was somebody recruited uh, out of uh, uh, Columbia University with a master's degree and given an FSO4 rating, uh, which was pretty high for somebody out of school with no experience. Um, <laughs> And when I talked to her, uh, journalists found her in, in Iowa living with her mother. Uh, she told me that she didn't do anything wrong. She was just simply doing what she was told. And uh, yet she had a job for 20 years with the State Department. Uh, 
So I, I think basically uh, it was well planned. Uh, it was uh, uh, if, it, if there was ever a real investigation of September 11th, uh, you would find out a lot more than the the, the government's particular theory or uh, of how it happened. Uh, but you can see how the, these people were brought to the United States from Saudi Arabia, uh, and that they were uh, their operations were known to uh, various levels of government officials. Uh, so you and don't, think, you you don't to... think, based on your what you know, do you do you think the government knew this was going to happen? Do you think, in particular, the uh, intelligence services, mostly I guess NSA and CIA? Mm-hmm. Um, involved in involved in tracking as well as in recruiting. Uh, I don't think the NSA did recruiting. I don't know. Maybe they did. I have no idea. But certainly the CIA. You you don't think they had any idea this was coming down the pike? I think that they are remarkably incompetent, but I don't think they're that incompetent. The the National Security Agency operates this huge vacuum cleaner that sucks up everything around the world. Um, my last assignment at the State Department was the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and there I read things like uh, uh, recordings of um, uh, transcripts of recordings of uh, two Japanese businessmen in a hotel room in Switzerland discussing where they're going for dinner that night. So they got an awful lot of information. Uh, the CIA was all over everything. The, the, the consulate at Jeddah, for example. Uh, there are only three people out of some 20 Americans there that I know for a certainty to have no connections whatsoever with any of the American intelligence services. So, uh, you know, they, so they you're, wait, really... you're saying three people out of 20 some that were there, only three were State Department people. Everybody else was intelligence? Yep. Could have been maybe three more people uh, besides myself and Lonnie Washington, and the, the State Department communicator, and, and uh Jim Page, the administrative uh, officer. Uh, but by and large, uh, yeah, they work for the CIA. They work for the National Security Agency. Uh, the NSA had a um, Arabic linguist from the CIA working for them. Um, and this goes on throughout most of the, um, of the State Department. Uh, depending on who you talk to, one-third or more of the people who work at a given foreign service post work for one of the intelligence services. Well, I mean, what does this what does this tell you? I mean, what, I'm trying I'm trying to figure out because this narrative in this book mm-hmm. blows up everything that you have almost everything that you've read about the road to 9/11. Yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously, the road to 9/11 was paved by the U.S. intelligence services, mm-hmm. according to your book. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, Walter Cutler, the former American ambassador to Saudi Arabia, is quoted in um, uh, Richard Dreyfuss's book, The Devil's Game, as saying, well, the people we were recruiting, I had no idea it would turn out like that, and that these people would turn into terrorists. And I just thought, well, I don't believe well, this. Well, I mean, I, I, listen, that, that just makes no sense at all. I mean, if you're, if you're training psychopaths to do things that are, you know— uh, to do things that uh, only psychopaths would do how yeah. how could you say you had no idea that you know this could happen first of all secondly you recruited them do you not keep track of them after you've recruited them i mean it's something this something i've never 
come across a story about 9-11 that smells fishier, smells more than what you have outlined based on your experience and, 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 and your research. I mean, the intelligence services of this country are basically in charge of what goes on, are basically in charge of foreign policy and the hidden foreign yeah. policy, which is which is a lot of major criminal activity. Yeah, go back to the very beginning. The first CIA coup in, in uh, Iran in 1953, where they overthrew the duly elected government of Mohammad Mossadegh. Right. They followed that up the next year with Guatemala overthrowing uh, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman. Arbenz, yep. Uh, and they've gone on ever since, uh, destabilizing lots of Latin American countries, uh, helping to create the, the wave of migrants moving north to the United States. Uh, they've um, essentially destroyed uh, the Middle East and North Africa uh, and uh, drove lots and lots, I, I believe on purpose, of refugees into Europe uh, where they had no ties of religion, language, or culture uh, to destabilize Europe. And uh, it's, it's, it's something that's, that's continuing, uh, and you, you see this uh, every time you open the newspaper almost. Well, it, it's interesting. One of the things that... Um what that that you said in your book which sums up um something really kind of terrifying and which sums up uh why uh you're saying this this continues and you you call it the um Afghan Arab Legion you call this yeah, al-Qaeda yeah. it's called al-Qaeda it's called Taliban it's called ISIS it's called but it's all the same yeah, sort of the same amorphous crowd. group I mean, they, of thousands it's a of rebranding uh, and maybe not the original people that were recruited years ago, or it may, may well be simply someone they've, they've trained. Uh, but when I talked with uh, former Lieutenant Colonel um, and okay. Senator Mike Gravel, former Senator Mike Gravel from Alaska, at the National Press Club here in D.C., I, I, I said to both of them at different times, uh, aren't the people that we're fighting now and claiming they're you know, are deadly terrorists uh, – the same people that we had uh, recruited for the Afghan war, and they they both said yes. Yeah. So you're so what you said that I wanted I wanted to finish my thought was that you said mm. Western intervention in Afghanistan created the Mujahideen or you know Al Qaeda. Yeah. Right. That whole group. Western intervention in Bosnia globalized it. Yeah. Now, yeah. why do you say that? Well, because uh, up until then, it, it wasn't really an organized force. Uh, but when they were moved uh, from Afghanistan into what used to be Yugoslavia and were supported by NATO, were trained by NATO, were supplied by NATO, uh, it, uh, it, it became an organized force uh, with Osama bin Laden at its head. And uh, it was then that they, they actually had something – that could be used to um, push this, this strange idea of, of the responsibility to protect, which uh, somehow ended up with uh, more damage, more dead people, uh, and, and so forth, than, than if they'd simply let the matters alone. So you, you, you eventually had a, uh, an organization that you didn't have before, and it was then used uh, after Yugoslavia in Iraq. Uh, Professor Edmund Garib said that you know, there was no ISIS or al-Qaeda or anything like that in Iraq until the American invasions. Um, and then the, the group uh, then moved into Libya, 
And so uh, you saying that, that, that they, these people were brought into Iraq to divide and conquer, balkanize, just right. like just like Yugoslavia. Yeah, exactly. Because you so had in, in um, Yugoslavia various tensions between various ethnic and religious groups, and you had the same thing in Iraq, where you had the uh, the Kurds in the north, uh, the Sunni in the center, and the Shi in the south. And the Americans have been trying to split the North off and, and then break up the rest of the country. And uh, they're, I guess, about halfway successful. So but their system works very well when you, you have a country that's divided in, in, in religious lines, ethnic lines, or uh, some other uh, tribal issues maybe, like in Libya. Uh, so it's, it's easy to play one side against the other. Now, so... Again, I I really want to go back to 9/11 because sure. if you use you 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 consciously bring this force to Afghanistan, you consciously bring this force to Iraq, okay? You mm -hmm. consciously bring this force. Now, you know now you call it ISIS and you, you pay for it. Uh, you fund it through Syria. Mm -hmm. Why is why is it that we why is it that we aren't thinking? That this force was used to attack the United States for some, to get us into Iraq and to get us uh, access to the oil. I, well, I, because I mean, they don't like the idea of being held to account. If they said this, if it came out, if people suspected it, uh, if they questioned the government's theory of September 11th, uh, then then there might be awkward questions asked. But if you you uh, blow up the two trade towers plus Building Seven. Uh, it somehow managed to fall into their own footprints and kill some 3,000 people. Then you have a reason to jump into the Middle East uh, and North Africa with, with both feet uh, and to continue uh, what they're doing, this time with the, uh, the whole American people behind them, saying America has been attacked by these terrible people, and we have to go forward and do something about it. And, of course, what they're doing is, uh, again, providing more aid, more supplies, and more recruits. Uh, to the gang of crazies we, we started recruiting back in Afghanistan, what, 40 or 30 years ago now, 40 years ago? So, so, Michael, are you saying that you think that this might have been an operation that was um, at the very least allowed to happen and at the, at the most um, very much aided and abetted by... Um, our government, particularly our intelligence services? Yeah, without a real investigation, a, a down-to-the-bottom-of-everything investigation, which the government has refused to do, uh, you can say something like that. You can say it was allowed to happen uh, on purpose, it was happened by mistake, uh, the Americans didn't know what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can come up with any kind of excuse. Uh, but by and large, uh, these people were recruited in Saudi Arabia out of the CIA's Jeddah consulate for the most part. And uh, then uh, somehow they uh, managed to hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings. Uh, uh, and somehow the buildings collapsed. In fact, some buildings had been by airplanes collapsed. Okay. Well, one thing I want to talk about, because we'll never get to the bottom of this, although I think that you have found a flashlight and are shining. I'm honestly, I got to say, I'm surprised you're, uh, you're standing still. 
Well, I get that not only from you, but from a lot of other people uh, whenever I've spoken out on this or uh, handed out a couple of copies of the books. They say, you know, why are you still alive? And I said, well, basically, if they kill me, they prove every word in the book is true. Okay, so that means you need as much spotlight as you can get. So yeah. anyway, let's talk about let let's talk about the omerta on this information and any and other inconvenient information mm-hmm. um, that raises huge red flags about nine eleven and and uh, other exploits around the world. Um, Talk about, I, I was just fascinated by the number of agencies and people and courts and this and that. You, I never saw anybody more energetically try to get attention and ears for this story than you. Could you talk about that, please? Well, back when I was at the State Department, and still was being paid every two weeks, um, I had been questioning the um, uh, the business of being forced to issue visas to unqualified applicants that had no ties either to their own country or to the place of application, as the law requires. Uh, and when I raised it with uh, the uh, uh, the consular section in Jeddah, I was told to shut up. When I raised it with uh, the consular section in Riyadh, uh, I was told that this is a very bad thing and I should talk to the Bureau of Consular Affairs in Washington. And finally, when the State Department handed me my dismissal notice, I said, well, uh, I, there's nothing going to hold me back anymore. I'm going to talk about this wherever and whenever I can. And I went to the um, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I went to the Justice Department. I went to the uh, what was then the Government Accounting Office. It is now called the Government Accountability Office. Uh, and basically, I was ignored. Uh, I went to the press and was ignored. Uh at one when the point, press did uh, you go to? I went to the Los Angeles Times for one. Uh, I talked to um, wow. the Associated Press at one point, and they, they did do a short story which basically uh, uh, criticized me and the people I was talking with. And um, I tried the Capitol Hill. I went to the House Intelligence Subcommittee and was told by the staffer that, uh, well, don't you think that we need the CIA? And well, wait a second. What? Yeah. Well, what kind of a response is that to? Hey, we're issuing uh, we're we're issuing uh, visas to to terrorists. What kind of a response, a response is that? It's, it's it wasn't. And uh, as far as I know, Capitol Hill uh, is uh, in bed with these guys. I mean, I wrote to Nancy Pelosi when she was the Democratic leader of the House uh, about this, and I was ignored. I wrote to. Um, um, 60 Minutes about this and was ignored. I wrote to um, uh, Democracy Now! and was ignored. Uh, so nobody wants to talk about this. They don't, they don't like the idea of their wonderful government uh, being responsible for destroying good bits of the world and killing lots and lots of people. Well, you also went to the Electronic Privacy Center, the Center for National Security Studies, Public Citizen, Center for Constitutional Rights, I'm surprised. What happened when you went to the Government Accountability Project? They're friends of mine. What? what did, they didn't respond to you at all? No, indeed. I, in fact, I went to their office at the State Department, and then uh, I have a friend who worked there at the time, and I asked who I should talk to there, and he gave me some names, and I wrote them, and the letters just went into a black hole or maybe a wastebasket. 
So let's talk about your FOIA attempts. This is another yeah. area where you were blocked completely. Yeah. Uh, back at the beginning, uh, I guess about 1992, uh, I decided, well, maybe I can find out why I got fired, and maybe I can find a way of clawing my back, way back in if I can find enough information. So I filed this with the help of a couple of attorneys I knew and got absolutely nowhere. And at one point, uh, Judge Harold Green uh, sealed the, uh, uh, the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit as a threat to national security and then dismissed it. And I'm not quite sure why my trying to find a way I got fired as a threat to national security, but uh, if they had to uh, disclose uh, all of the uh, CIA machinations, uh, maybe that, that would bother them. Uh, the second time was, I guess, about almost 10 years later, uh, and I decided that uh, I should ask for what I didn't ask for the first time, which was the um, the visas that I had uh, refused, uh, visa applications I had refused, and that Jay Frears, the Consul General, had demanded that I issue. And I would always make notations on this, and uh, in fact kept a file in my office of uh, copies of uh, these uh, applications that Frere's quite illegally overruled. And that disappeared after I left Jeddah, and the, um, uh, the State Department claimed it couldn't find any of the visa applications because all of them are shredded every year, which was absolute nonsense because I was there uh, in Jeddah, and I looked at the file room we had, and we had row after row of four- and five-drawer filing cabinets filled to overflowing with old visa applications. And I said to my staff, you know, shouldn't we start trading some of this stuff? And they said, well, Mike, look, what do you want us to do? We have 100 to 200 visa applications a day, sometimes more in high season when uh, people are leaving for the Hajj or, or uh, uh, other holidays. And, uh, you know, we can do one or the other, but we can't do both. So I said, fine, leave them there. And these went back when I, I just glanced at a few of them. They went back 10 or 15 years before my time. So I don't think they suddenly shredded all of them miraculously the day after I left, and I don't think they shredded the applications that uh, uh, my successors uh, had put into the uh, the system. I mean, we went through about 45,000 visa applications a year. So I, I think they didn't get rid of all of them, but they claimed they did. And when I said, well, I know where they are, and they, they were here, and they were there, and um, – why don't you look in the records of um, the people at the consulate, like the consul general, the head of the, uh, the consular section, and so forth? And they said, no, we have no obligation to do that. They're all retired now. So it was basically a stone wall at every opportunity, and they eventually dismissed my uh, second Freedom of Information Act lawsuit uh, on the basis of uh, I hadn't exhausted my legal remedies to uh, find out or administrative remedies what, to find out why, what had happened to what I wanted, and which of course was absolute nonsense. That makes that had. makes no sense. Uh, so the no. judge, the judge, basically the system is rigged from start to finish. If if they, you know, it, first of all, it sucks your time and energy and resources. You know, you file the initial FOIA, they don't want to give it to you, so they, mm -hmm. you know, they tell you, oh, we can't find it, and so, and, and yep. then you yep. have to go through the courts, and then the courts are going to back them up on on these sensitive. Uh, on these sensitive asks. Yes. So, you know, unless you're looking for the nested site of the spotted owl, then you have no problems with the Freedom of Information Act. Request. Well, yes, of course. You know, I, I want to talk about something that really uh, 
really disturbs me, and that is uh, the Pakistanis. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, between September 4 and even on September 11, the the head of the ISI, because the Pakistanis, the money that we were giving to these uh, terrorists was being funneled through Pakistan, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, September 4th through September 11th, the head of the Pakistani ISI, intelligence services, the guy who apparently, allegedly I'll say, because gave, sent $100,000 to Mohammed Atta, is there meeting, you know, having meetings with the Pentagon, having meetings with the CIA, meeting with the head of the intelligence, uh, Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, Bob Grant. What the hell was going on? Well, he was just securing uh, his connections to the American government and make sure that the money kept flowing. Uh, Bob Baird told me that there was a Saudi named Badib who took more than a million dollars in freshly printed currency from the United States and uh, carried it from Saudi Arabia to um, Pakistan, giving it to the president, Zia al-Haq, and, and high-ranking uh, generals uh, to pay for Chinese weapons. But so he they, was they wanted... there right when this was ha- de- right before it happened and when it happened? Is that timing just pure coincidence? It sure seems pure coincidence. Uh, I think it's probably a bit more than that, but uh, since nobody's talking, we'll never know. I mean, I find it incredible, just incredible, that the guy who was getting the money for these terrorists, who had sent $100,000 to you know one of the lead guys, Mohammed Atta, he's mm-hmm. there on the four, and, and meeting with all the people you know, if if indeed this were some kind of, uh, you know, conspiracy to get us into war with Iraq to, to, to secure, you know, secure the oil, secure the footprint, you know, mm-hmm. so that we could basically fulfill the project for a new American century uh, uh, map, roadmap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, which was, you know, destabilize these countries one after another um, and control them and their their resources. I mean, it would be interesting, very interesting, and any investigator would say, oh, hmm, the head of the Pakistani intelligence service, it, what was his, that, Mahmoud Ahmed or something? Uh, I don't remember. Was here on... Uh, on 9/11, I, I just I just find that so so fascinating. I wonder well, if he was clean uh, that they were here and that they weren't involved in anything. They were just simply conducting consultations. Uh, if you believe that, you believe in the the Easter Bunny too. Well, I mean, this is this is the thing that I'm just I'm just trying very hard to get my mind around. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing uh, that people don't even realize, you know, the CIA. <clears throat> is not legally allowed to operate in the United States. No, no. And, and but in fact, they had a, um, a, various a station ways in New York City that uh, uh, they used to uh, 
contact uh, foreign diplomats and students and American businessmen returning from abroad, well, that went down with one of the trade towers. Uh, but they had, they had them all across the country. They work especially with diffusion centers where they get information from the FBI and uh, uh, the intelligence services and uh, private uh, organizations like the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, and then that's given to them, and then they uh, they do investigations of people that they shouldn't really investigate. You know, another thing that you said that I that sticks in my mind, and it's going to seem to be apropos of nothing, but it's still I I why did you say it? You said the term national security has no legal definition. Well, it doesn't. I've never seen one. I mean, they uh, they talk and talk about it and talk about this, but uh, when I was in Jeddah, for example, uh, they classified as confidential the disclosure of which would uh, cause serious harm to the United States foreign relations. Uh, that was the uh, the classification level, the prices of of alcohol and what was sold as alcohol uh, in Jeddah to the American staff. So that would cause terrible things for America. Yeah, if you exposed the they were the selling alcohol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jetta. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem with national security. It's this big it's this big dark blanket that's put over every crime, every embarrassing thing, every, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is this is abuse of authority, murder, war crimes, human rights violations. Uh, oh, that violates national security. We can't tell you why you got fired from the state department. I mean, have you have you ever thought about the laws, all the laws that have been broken or are being broken? I mean, what is how what to you is I know you're not a lawyer. I know you're, mm. you know, a, a former diplomat and now a whistleblower. But what do you think? I mean, how if you were going to construct a case here, um, who who would you go after and why? No, I would go after the people at the top of the various intelligence services and the people in Congress uh, at the top who are routinely informed of uh, CIA activities abroad, uh, the chairman of the, uh, the various intelligence committees, the chairman of the government operations committees that are supposedly overseeing these agencies – uh, the chairman of the foreign affairs committees, and uh, the uh, the speaker of the house, and the uh, well, I don't know what you can say, president pro tem of the senate, since that changes a lot. Uh, but by and large, uh, then you start going after some of the people in the court, some of these judges, like Harold H. Green, who's who's dead now. Uh, but there are a number of other judges who routinely knuckle under to the uh, needs of the CIA, and they uh, close down information on. Uh, uh, Jonestown massacre and uh, the killing of congressmen and their staff down there uh, years ago. Um, the people who keep the lid on Operation Paperclip that talked about bringing all these uh, Nazis uh, to the United States after the war. Uh, I mean, you, you can go back uh, to 1945 and beyond and, 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 and nail every last one of them, uh, but nobody's going to do it because that would have uh, they'd have to admit what they've done. Uh, that Congress, the judicial branch, and all the people in the executive branch, uh, to a man, supported all of these people. They never questioned it, never asked, uh, why are you doing this? Uh, it's like the Vietnam War. Uh, the people who protested the Vietnam War when they were in the government, their careers didn't advance. The people, people who kept their mouths shut 
uh, got regularly promoted. So it would be like that. You know, and then plus you've got these people who uh, would be seen as a, their whole life was a lie. They worked an entire career at the CIA or the NSA or wherever, uh, and uh, they knew about what was happening. Uh, Ralph McGee, who died recently, uh, said when he was in Vietnam involved with Operation Phoenix, where you assassinated people that uh, you thought were Viet Cong, uh, he said he, he was thinking of committing suicide. Good Catholic boy from Notre Dame that he was. So, uh, you know, it, it would really be a shock, and uh, nobody wants to wreck their career. Uh, they got two kids in college. They're in their 50s, and they have a mortgage on their house. Uh, are they going to come out and say, yes, indeed, uh, this is what these people did in, uh, in, uh, on September 11th. This is what they did in, uh, in Libya or Syria or uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or Yugoslavia? No, nah, they're not going to do that. Well, why did you write your book? Why did you do that? I have a bad attitude. Plus, I figured this was the only way I could get back at these people for what they had done to me. I would publish this thing. I would write it. I would research it. I would have other people look it over for me. And uh, uh, I figured if nothing else, I can put this out there and, and get some of my own back. I mean, I just I just think it's absolutely stunning. I, are you? Do you think that your book is also a comment on what kind of government we have. I mean, do we really have a democracy? No, if... we don't. We've got a government that wants to destroy uh, uh, Halab or Aleppo, Syria, that wants to destroy Damascus, that destroyed Sirta in Libya, uh, and the towns and villages and cities in Yugoslavia and elsewhere. Uh, and at the same time, uh, there's no water to get lead out of the – no money to get lead out of the drinking water in Flint, Michigan. There's no money to repair bridges and overpasses. There's no money for um, synchronizing traffic lights and, and fixing potholes in cities. Uh, you have people wasting inordinate, amount, inordinate amounts of time sitting in traffic jams. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's much more need at home for this kind of money we're spending to destroy other people's countries. I mean, you said you wrote something that hit me right there between my, you know, eyes. Uh, you said uh, you wrote, America is essentially a failed state whose raison d'être is global war to keep its economy healthy. Exactly. Look, we're going with the Saudis. How many billions of dollars of weapons is Donald Trump and the? Um uh, the merchants of death, the Raytheon and, and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and whatever, uh, selling weapons to the Saudis to use to uh, bomb school buses and wedding processions and funerals in Yemen. I mean, this is this is like so profoundly pathological. I I I can't begin to know. I'm I, I'm I have a small. I'm holding a tiny little candle with some hope that exposing this thing will wake enough people up to to say, you know what, our tax dollars, we'll keep our tax dollars, thank you very much, instead of, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm not suggesting that anybody do this, but, you know, if, if a huge portion of your tax dollars are, are being used, um, you know, for these wars and to pay to train terrorists who have attacked you and then and then there's no accountability because the people who have attacked you are people are are people from your own government how do you make this change it's really deep 
Uh, and the worst of it, of course, is that when anybody from outside, like Ross Perot or Ralph Nader, uh, decides to run to office and say, well, we're going to change things, uh, the two parties, or maybe the, both cheeks of the great American behind, work with the uh, the mainstream media to uh, characterize these people as crazies, and uh, they're disturbing the, the natural order of things, and they're endangering democracy and so forth. Uh, but in actual fact, you've got to get rid of this uh, lockstep, same political party with different names uh, yes. that we, we, we've had for years. Uh, but you're going to need to start at the bottom and work your way to the top. And uh, if the mainstream media, which is owned by maybe five or six corporations, uh, can't, it won't be able to do it and refuses to do it. I mean, you've got the CIA with its program Operation Mockingbird. Uh, that set out to control these the stories that the news media reported and had uh, uh, their people on the uh, news media's payroll or the news media's payroll uh, consisted of people who worked uh, on behalf of the CIA uh, and, and drew both salaries from. Uh, You're not going to get the mainstream so news media to do anything. I mean, they're bought. They're right. they're definitely bought and paid for. The government is bought and paid for. Uh, the justice system is is bought and paid for. So uh, this, to me, looks like it has to be uh, some sort of a grassroots thing or something, because yeah. uh, I, I don't see these these institutions are so mammoth, and, and, the, and now the surveillance is so complete. Mm. Yeah. You know? So exactly. how, you know, how do you deal, how do you deal with that unless you have people, a few people on the inside of these mammoth... Uh, you know, these mammoth institutions wake up and mm -hmm. say, oh, my God, what where are we here? I mean, we mm -hmm. are now in, yeah. in an Orwellian nightmare that's yeah. that's run by spies and and sur surveillance, uh, surveillance mm -hmm. people, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one thing you did was was you have put the focus on the intelligence community with respect to all the crimes, the major war crimes, et cetera, done here and abroad squarely on the surveillance and intelligence services. You, that, that you have done with, of course, the cooperation, collaboration, uh, whether active or passive, of all the other um, institutions uh, funded by our tax dollars. Yeah. I mean, we know the CIA has its own budget quite apart from his rather large budget that it gets from the taxpayer. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they hide their budget in, in various other government agencies. I got to tell you, uh, you have given us a lot to think about, um, a lot of it kind of terrifying. But I really think that to solve a problem, you really have to get to the bottom of it and you have to see, you have to look at everything. And you have done a huge service right here. Huge service. Thank you very much. Michael Springman. So thank you so much for being on the show. Our time is up. But um, I don't think this is the last time that we're going to have a conversation because I'd love to talk to you again in the future. Sure. I'd be happy to. Thank you for being on. You're welcome. To